I'm Nevin, and I'm cooking up a podcast. Each week, I'm talking with people about food and cooking, sharing some recipes, and going on some adventures. This week, I'm talking about real and natural wines with David Mitchell, the owner of Mies Wines. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Cooking Up a Podcast. If you haven't checked out the website, please check out the website, nevintaylorcooks.com. I'm sharing recipes and posting videos up on YouTube every single week. New stuff coming out all the time. But this week, I'm talking with David Mitchell, very passionate about wine. And I am not super educated about wine. I like drinking wine. Wine is cool. Um, I like natural wines. I like wines that are maybe a little bit more, have a little bit more character than the like foofy, traditional, ooh, I like wine, you know, swirl it around and sniff it type of stuff. But, you know, wine has a story. Wine has a personality. There's a whole world of stuff in there. And David Mitchell helps me learn and explains a few things to me and hopefully this is the beginning of uh some more things to come with david mitchell um he gives some suggestions on wine and that sort of thing and uh yeah maybe we'll figure out some stuff to do we're gonna go on some trips we're gonna go on some adventures he's gonna be a little wine uh go-to guy on here hopefully so we'll hear from him again soon yeah so here we go this is me and david mitchell and own a very small importing and wine distribution company, Mies, M-I-S-E. So April of 2018 was our sixth year business. Before that, I worked at the Pleasure, um, lucky enough to work for one of the real iconic small import companies in Massachusetts, Violet Imports, for Richard Kazarian at Violet Imports, who, uh, you know, gave me the chance and the freedom to do a lot of different things over over a decade or more of working with him um, and really got to know Boston and the wine scene here and the culture and uh, I just owe him a lot for what he meant to me and what can cont- what continues to, to mean for me six years April was our six year anniversary and uh, I started the company with uh, my colleague and partner Jackson um, who worked with me at Violette and uh, uh, prior to that I got in the wine business in California so I moved here from California right before the crazy Y2K uh, millennial period. Um, I was, uh, had got to California after being in university in Virginia on the East Coast. And uh, I realized after doing a few years in the Navy, as much as I loved certain parts of it, I was not going to make a career out of it. And I spent a few time, a few, a few um, summers figuring out what I wanted to do as soon as I could get out. In the next. And uh, I started working at some wine shops in downtown San Diego where I was stationed. Some really 
iconic wine shops and got to see the industry kind of as a consumer and spend some time figuring it out and figuring out what my role could be in it. I, I guess my history in the business has seen it from the ground up from uh, so the really commercial side all the way up into artisanal wine and most recently here in New England understanding what I think artisanal wine and good quality wine is all about and what wine means to me and how it can be appreciated and and what's its cultural reference point and whatnot. And so for us, that really means wines that are made by hand, uh, meaning that um, everything is not just physically, vineyards are worked by hand, but harvested by hand. Natural wine, meaning uh, wine that's fermented with wild yeast, you know, natural yeasts, um, and wine with the most minimal amount of handling. So on one side of the spectrum, we have a portfolio where wines are made by hand and no sulfites are added. And it's completely like an, a, a very beautiful, wild experience, very pure. And then we have some wines that are, you know, little, a, a couple steps down from there, but are moving in that direction. Real wine, quality wine, artisanal wine is being made in every state. And I think this sort of a renaissance that's happening now for um, domestic wine in places that have, have nothing to do with California, you know, in any other state. And almost in every region of the, of the country, you see really good quality wine being made, whether it's Vermont, Long Island, Texas, Minnesota, Utah, mm-hmm. Maryland. Yeah. So it's really exciting. When you were in the Navy and you first got those like retail retail wine jobs, like what was it? Well, in college, I was a history major and uh, probably because I wanted to do a lot of different things and I didn't really know what I wanted to do all at the same time. I think wine is a cultural tie-in for sort of history, geology. Um, it's just, it's a product that's made by human beings for human beings. Yeah, I was just curious about the product. You know, it's got this cork closure and you have to have this strange like corkscrew to open it. And there's something about it that's really sort of out of the 19th century in a world that's like, you know, technology and iron and fast cars. And, you know, I mean, totally. when you were, when, when I was, you know, and you find yourself in your 20s, it's not a lot of things like a bottle of wine that, besides the fact that it's alcohol and, you know, it gets you all loopy and whatnot. Your general interest or the first thing that kind of started was being a history major and the cultural connections and kind of like the depth that goes into producing something like wine, um, which we've talked a lot about before in, you know, specifically New England, but then, you know, with your background in wine, like what are some of those, I guess, like cultural expressions or like some of that deep history type stuff that like really kind of like made it the light bulb go off in your head maybe? Oh, I mean, it's, it's, you know, when you have a chance to travel to a wine region and meet a family who's been, you know, multi-generations farming the same place, I, I think in the modern world, because the U.S., we're such a mobile society and more mobile all the time. And we, we can't even, you know, most people don't even, they buy a house, they don't even live in it for more than a few years before they sell and move to another house. And just think of a family that's tied to a piece of land, the same piece of land for multi-generations, you know, and that day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year exchange that happens between different generations of a family regarding wine or just, just in life is just pretty amazing. So those are really special sort of situations when you can see those and be exposed to them. But then... Being a history major, you know, recently I've been fascinated uh, because 2018, you know, this November will be the signing of the armistice to end World War One, And so in 2014, and since 2014, there's been a lot of books about the history of World War One. A lot of these, our veterans have died a long time ago, who veterans from World War One, but um, in, it's not too far from many wine regions in, um, in France. You know, there were a lot of really horrible battles that were fought and we can't really understand like the kind of gross industrialization of warfare you know when you hear about 
statistics like I, I read that eight million horses died in World War One. You just can't we can't understand today what they can't wrap our head around that. And so when you go to these wine regions where you know the lines were moving back and forth and they were occupied versus being liberated and you had these armies moving through them and they made wine through that experience and before it and after it and what that meant for the people that came back from the war if they were lucky enough to come back and what that meant for the surrounding area where you might have unexploded shells for 40 50 years being still in the vineyards they were found and you know occasionally those kinds of things are just you know interwoven that you know in this country we can't sort of understand you know and we're sitting here in the greater Boston area, which has been importing wine from Burgundy and Bordeaux, just as an example, for hundreds of years. And so throughout conflicts and wars, and whether they're on this side of the hemisphere or on that side of the hemisphere, like it's just amazing to me that, you know, wine is a constant in some yeah. ways, you know, it's a human endeavor. It cuts through tragedy and loss and good times and bad. And also, I think anyone who really likes wine has this story of a memorable bottle of wine that they can and they remember where they are who they're with when they had it and because when you you know wine is tied to memory and so not just the history and culture that side of memory but also you know our emotions that come from memory it's like a moment in time it's almost like when you hit when you listen to a, a music album and you have that amazing experience with an album the reason it's called an album is because it's those songs are kind of locked in time you know and, and it's the food that goes with it you know you remember what restaurant you had and what you ordered that whole all those things working together there's there's something that happens they're all in your senses that come together and it's locked emotionally in this space in time and even if you recreate it it could never be exactly the as meaningful or as, as special. Uh, I didn't see the World War One thing coming. That was <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's 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 quite amazing the history and and wine being wrapped up in there. And you know what? Say you'd say World War Two as well, but I think there's just so much more written about World War Two. It's more closer to our U.S. consciousness, and we're so far moved from War One because it was a mostly you know European conflict. The Americans were involved until like the last year of the war. So. All right, let's talk, I like, want to go maybe a little bit deeper on natural wine or real wines or whatever the terminology is that you want to use. But Sure. So we, when we started the company, we had this sort of motto, the saying, you know, the art means is the art and joy of real wine. So I like to use the term real wine. Um, natural wine is a very popular term right now at the moment. Uh, for, for me, wine has to be made from properly grown grapes. And for a long time, that just had to, that term had to properly grown meant the way they looked, growing as many, you know, just having as much yields as possible. Uh, but it's deeper than that because, you know, we all understand now that you have to respect the land, has to be grown the right way. So growing grapes organically or biodynamically quote unquote naturally is the least common denominator for how you make like real wine or good wine. Natural wine is one of these words that for me doesn't, doesn't tell the consumer a lot. I think it's a really vague term. And so you have a lot of people latching onto it. Um, you know, loosely means, you know, the wines with the least amount of additives or zero additives possible. So it's a trendy word to use natural wine now, but I think for some people it's it's really hard for them to wrap their mind around. I use I, I like the term real wine for me. That means that from from my standpoint, my standard is wine comes from grapes and it's shepherded along a, a production fermentation process into wine. Now, some people 
with multi-generations of history behind them and a lot of experience can make wine with zero or very low additives. But for some people in regions where you don't have that history, they're working their way towards that. So I don't have one standard necessarily for everybody. What for, what's for me personally most important is that the grapes are grown the right way and that a winemaker is every year working to use the least amount of technology and manipulation and additives possible. So everyone's kind of on a process. You know, it's it's a bit like a musician, you know, when you start out making music, you might have a hit song, but you're always pushing, you gotta be pushing yourself to like a new frontier of making the best art form possible. And wine is not made, does not make itself. I think this, we live in a kind of a really interesting wine nexus right now where you have one size spectrum people they only want to deal with wines without any sulfites added and so they're very virulent about that and i completely respect that we have some of those growers and some of those wines in our portfolio but i'm not sure that's sort of always possible for everybody because at the end of the day uh, you know producers want to sell their wine and if no one likes the wine or if there's problems with it you make a mistake and you can live with that mistake all year long. You have to you have to be able to make a product that's stable, that can be able to ship, that people resonates with people, that's delicious. I mean, how do you describe the taste of delicious? You kind of know it when you see it. And for everybody, there's kind of like a, a range of what delicious is. Wine lists and stuff like I have no idea. Like I don't even know what I could. I know what the year is, but like other than that, there's so much right. stuff. Like well, and, it, for me, I get back to like clothing or art. Like it's the same way for music. It's such an amazing time. There's types of music that right now that, you know, there's a range of music, you know, you never saw this range before. Wine is finally put on that kind of level, you know, yeah. which I think is some ways for the consumer. There's, you can find whatever you want out there. You just got to know how to find it. A lot of the like exclusivity of it has been broken away. Completely been broken away because not only we don't have red and white and rosé, now we have fizzy, we have pink and fizzy, we have white and fizzy, we have red and fizzy, we have sweet and dry and all these. So I think for the first time ever, if you like a wine a certain way, there's wine for you out there. Yeah. You know, you I like how you out. just said that. That's to me, like, that's a, what I like. And maybe, you know, where my headspace usually is, is like, I know what flavors I like, or I know, like, you know, white and fizzy and light. Like, I like that, but like, what that means in and a lot of And don't get me ways, wrong, like, I mean, there's challenges to that because as we start talking about these wines from Maryland, um, all Westminster wines in a can, wine is a visual product and people are drawn to the way the wine looks and tastes and the way the visual appeal of it. So it's a bit dangerous too because it, all those things get away from what we're trying to tell people about, which is most important, which is how the wine is made. Right. You know, for us, we have to have wines that look good and taste good. That's That's gotta be part of the package no matter what, that's number one. But our, let's peel back that first layer of onion and say, whatever you put in your body that you buy from us, like these aren't poisonous wines. These are wines that are, you know, they're real wine. And that's the hardest thing about wine. I mean, honestly, we, we live in visual world and then when you get the wine open, the way it tastes, but we're trying to beat this drum of like, the grapes are grown the right way and they're from this farmer and they're from this place and this is why it tastes the way it does, yeah. you know? The USDA has like five pages of additives you can put into wine. And they're not poisons, they're just like thickers and fillers and color agents and all these things that have nothing to do with grapes. And we, we just want wine that says grapes, you might have a little preservative in there, you know, sulfites or whatever if you need it because it's from halfway around the world. But. Yeah. Specifically, what are sulfites and what do they do to the wine? Yes, yeah, sulfur. So sulfur has been used since Roman times to 
as a preservative to help a wine be more stable as it transports, whether it was in clay jars or in oak barrels or whatever. So it helps the wine from oxidizing, especially you're talking about like a white wine. And so it's been used in small amounts. I mean, sulfur's on the periodic table of elements, so it's a natural compound, but sulfites and most of the sulfur used in winemaking is also from the petroleum. It's one of the derivatives of petroleum refineries. You know, there are there is this belief that you can get volcanic sulfur, which your body can understand and break down more way more easily. It's almost like vitamins, you know, there's locally occurring organic compounds and vitamins. And then there's the stuff that is synthesis synthetic vitamins. And when you go to the store, you don't really know. You have to really know what, what you're getting because your body can metabolize them differently. So it's not so much about, in my mind, and about like whether sulfites are good or bad. It's more like, you know, a little goes a long way. And if a winemaker is very careful using sulfites to make sure a wine is stable, it's not a poison. There are people who don't want to add anything to their wines, and I completely respect and you know, if they can do that, that's great. The wine has to come after around the world. Um, just like in the political spectrum, there are people who are really adamant that, you know, this is the only way and this is what's right and anything else, but this is wrong. And so, you know, I'm not getting wrapped up in the right and wrong. I want to believe in someone who's passionate about what they're doing, who's growing grapes the right way and is following their consciousness. People who are experimenting with it and more likely what you see is people who are, who are conscious, who are trying to make wine without sulfites are reducing the amount and comfortable using a hundredth of what they might have used or what their previous generation had used. And then some years they can they can have wines without sulfites. It depends. I mean, the weather's so wacky or climate's so wacky, it, everything's changing every year. Some years the grapes have more natural acidity and some years they don't. Some some vintages of wines you drink early and young and some, some are built to age and they have that structure. So most of the growers we work with, most growers who are thinking about minimal intervention are using the lunar calendar um, to bottle. So there's a you know full moon and it's usually done seasonally. It's almost like think of harvest moon kind of a concept. You know, when you, the pressure is such that you're gonna, you're gonna extract the most amount of, least amount of solid material in the bottling, you know, so you can bottle with the least amount of intervention and you're, all the solids settle on the bottom and it all has to do with like the pressure and the, you know. So most of these growers, with that in mind, you know, bottles certain times of the year. And they'll sometimes even tell you, like, the wine was just bottled, but it's only going to get better. So you wait for another season to come around. So we, you bring it in the middle of summer, but it's the end of the summer thing that happens when you go into fall and the weather finally goes from being warmish to more coolish. And you retaste that wine again, you're like, oh, the wine is just spot on. It's a smoke show. It's just really at its best right now. Wow. It was good before, but it's just yeah. better, you know. And then even more like, time than that, like, it's... It's more expressive aromatics when you smell the glass, you're like, Oh my God! Six like, months, right? From yeah, yeah, let's, yeah. But then what about that first year? In, that first year in the bottle, because some 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 producers will will bottle it, and hold on to it before they release it. You know, it just depends each each region, each kind of wine, the history. They all have their own, you know, way of doing things. But yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and a good a great example is rosé. Like most people. We're, we're going into warm weather here and people are going to be pasty white skin and flip-flops and shorts all over Boston, But and they want to drink rosé, but the reality is most of these, the real rosés that are bottled in April now or, you know, anytime from end of March to through April are going to be at their best like in August. And most of them will be long gone and drunk and bottles emptied and on their way to recycling centers. The average span of a life of a bottle of wine is 45 minutes from the time of purchase. If you combine retail and restaurant experiences, average them together, like from a wine is ordered in a restaurant, it's drunk right away. From a retail, it's like 45 minutes. I've never really thought about wine as a seasonal 
yeah. endeavor. The harvest happens anywhere from, depending on every, there's a fluctuation from September, October, maybe some cool regions into end of October. Fermentation's gonna get you into November, middle of ember, December. You wanna go through a period of settling. There's a primary fermentation, secondary fermentation, and then you have some settling of solid material falling through. You need cold winter temperatures to do that. So maybe some growers used to fling open their doors in the cellar to have the cold air come in the winter to settle the tanks down. Um, and, the, and then you bottle the basic. So the like bottling rosés won't or white wines. the spring. Yeah, after, yeah, in the spring. And it goes yeah. in the bottle in the yeah, spring. Yeah, it's all and shook up. It, you need a period of the wine to kind of sit and, you know, come into its own. Yeah. But the red wines, after they were finished in the spring, probably went into barrel or end of winter went into barrel and they're racked off from one barrel to another. And they would go through a period of aging in barrel to help them soften and round out, you know, and go through that cellar treatment and bottle at the end of the summer or something like that. I, 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 not winemaker, but a vigneron would look at his, Noah's vineyards. And this is where you have that amazing cumulative knowledge of generations. And he, you know, he's learned from his father or their parents or grandparents that this soil on this hill, like the vines, usually the best vines come from this part. They ripen later, but that's the really good stuff or he, he knows the difference between young vines and old vines or he knows where certain parcels are never most of the time don't ripen the right way or over the course of a growing season watching them knowing that what's happening from a storm hail whatever where there's some damage and we should pick this early and young because it's probably not going to sit through the end of fall and be some of their best quality fruit so that's stuff we can make rosé from press off and rosé this stuff you can go into some sort of a basic entry-level light red blend and then where the best quality grapes are they're going to be long-lived in the most long-lived wines and yeah. yes barrels or cellars or tanks or casks or yeah. you know what about these old westminster people they got some yeah. cool stuff going on. Yeah. Um, kind of a breath of fresh air. So the Baker family, this is uh, uh, Andrew Baker and his two sisters reached out to me um, last fall and just out of the blue and said, hey, we like some of the other producers you work with in the U.S. that we know, whose wines we like, and you know, Oregon and, and these wines from Long Island that Regan Midor makes and now is making in Texas. And, uh, you know, we want to, you know, talk to you about our winery. And so they're a family who, in these brother and two sisters inherited this, this farm that had been growing as a tree farm. And they, after college and going their separate ways and different specialties came together and said, how can we, you know, what can we start here that we're passionate about that we want to do? And they wanted to give winemaking a shot. They weren't the first. Um, and they saw the potential of the greater Maryland area to be, you know, a place you could grow some pretty phenomenal grapes. And there's definitely a history of it. If you go back hundreds of years of growing grapes in, in, in Maryland, um, colonial period and whatnot. Um, and then, you know, about a month after that, Andrew said, he reached out to me and said, you know, I have this new project I want to tell you about. And he showed me this, you know, images of wine in a can. I was just, my first inclination was a whole bunch of question marks and what's going on. And, and then we had a couple discussions about it. And then we had a chance to try the, the wines. Um, they started the first round of canning last fall. Um, and every time I tasted them, every time I met him and we came up, it was clear that they weren't doing it as a fad. They really wanted to get, I mean, they saw what's happened with beer and having small amounts of really high quality beers that were really minimally handled. Some of these were not, no preservatives and so they were delicate in a can. And they thought, well, if they can do that with beer, it's carbonate. Like, you know, we can do this with wine. And I think they were hell bent on, because they were young, they're, they're young, is not being afraid of having people tell them they couldn't do it. And they're doing it on such a limited scale that they feared, you know, nothing venture, nothing gain. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. What do we have to lose? It's a new venture for us. We just started with them this spring, but the hardest part we have is that their, the visual appeal of the packaging is pretty phenomenal. 
I mean, they stand out. They really nailed it from a design standpoint, which is great for business. But what's in the can is really good quality wine. They're all unfiltered wines. Uh, off dry white, dry white, and two rosés. What does that mean, unfiltered? You know, in some ways, sulfites, and talking about sulfites is like the, the biggest buzzword, but it's been used since the Roman era. But when you talk about really real wine and wine that's made artisanally, um, unfiltered wines mean there's no, there, you haven't passed it through some membrane filter, so you haven't pulled out solid materials that are attached to other sort of compounds. So when you hold up a clear glass bottle of white wine and there's not, it's just pristine, clear, sort of white, looks like water, that usually result of something that's, you know, been done to the wine. Manipulation. Manipulation. So you can use machines, varying degrees of membranes, going down to microns and, you know, one micron and even smaller than that. So it's basically like pushing, like through osmosis, pushing the wine through like a something that a million times more dense than a coffee filter, you know? So what you're pulling out is not just solid material, visually solid, but other compounds attracted to it, which means that the wine is clean. It's ster- it's quote, quote unquote sterilized. So you don't have to worry about anything happening to it, but also means that over time that wine's going to fall apart because you've robbed it of materials that help it protect itself and age. And add flavor, I'm sure. And right? add flavor. Yeah. yeah. So for the most part, um, through temperature, you can have a wine kind of be cold stabilized and you can have it also be unfiltered. So you can find a way of not having like thick, cloudy, floaty things happening in it. When I talk about all Westminster cans, they are just, when you pour the wine in a clear glass, you can see there's just a tiny hint of faint cloudiness, but this means the wine is unadulterated. It's not manipulated. It's not mass commodity. It's not a mass commodity that is bought and sold. Like you, know, you might get from California or something like that at that price range. And there, so, so all these grapes are they're gr- grown in Maryland and they're grown sustainably. Um, Drew was the first person he's great about saying we're not certified organic, but we're really trying hard to do it. It's a very wet climate for growing grapes. And so we're getting very close, but we can't legally be called get certified organic viticulture yet, but they're like on the verge of doing it. And he feels like they're going to, it's going to be the next, they're doing experimentations every year all the time. And they're using, you know, herbal sprays and whatnot. They're, they're zeroing down. It's going to be there, but they just feel like they can't legally say that yet. And that's just goes to how honest they are about every step of the process. And I want to support people like that who are working hard to get in that way because they could be certified organic and make vinegar. And I'm not selling vinegar. I've got to sell good wine. You know, we have had as a small company, a little bit of experience with selling wines that don't come in a glass bottle with a cork closure. People think that like a screw cap is, or some beer cap is kind of avant-garde. But uh, when you start getting into the numbers and the economics of the glass and the cork and what it all means, you realize how much waste there is in the wine world. And so part of the reason why we feel good about selling these alternative forms of packaging is that if the wine in each package is good quality wine, then, and all you're trying to do is to get people to visually deal with a different form of enclosure or packaging. And what's great is, as the millennial generation gets to be of more wine drinking legal age, they're not, they don't care. They're, they just don't care about that. Just like, you know, they're so adamant about certain things. They're just adamant about like, if it tastes good and if, and they're visually appealing, they don't actually, they actually go towards that kind of stuff. So it's liberating because I'm not of that generation. It's liberating for me to see um, those kinds of customers. Cause we run into situations where buyers of a, of my age or older will be anti wine X or wine Y because it's in an alternative foreign packaging, but they somehow, if they bring it ashore and give it a shot, like their customers is running towards it and then they have to reorder it. 
it opens their mind that way. It's almost like you, what, 10, 15 years ago when people in my generation were, you know, adamant about wanting to go to Whole Foods because they felt like there's just better quality stuff there. Uh, I guess we could touch on cider really quick. New England, like to me, it's like the, that's the New England expression of all of these sort of things, which recently is now starting to get some stuff. And I've found recently as a thing to be doing, but, um, yeah, it seems like, you know, that whole process, it's like the same process basically, but like with a different fruit and a different end product. But like, it's, I don't know, there's like some sort of a connection that I feel to it of the like, um, you know, people in France feel to yeah. grapes. So people are definitely, I mean, the, the people planting grapes and the amount of wineries in New England is, is just, is growing, but just like planting orchards, it takes time for these to come in. So what you, it takes a lot of capital to Potentially plant orchards. generations even too, to really kind of. Exactly. And so, you know, there are a couple of things you, you can experiment different types of trees, whatever, but it takes a long time for an industry like cider to the orchards to come up from ground up. It takes, it can be like a generation, you know? So some of the things that have happened the last 10 years, we're going to start feeling in the next five or seven, but there's stuff coming online sort of all the time. And so you have this combination of something that takes a lot of time, capital intensive, and from a production standpoint, there's a whole lost history of cider in this in this part of the world, this was like a huge cider. I mean, you know, the the New England countryside is littered with apple trees that are now in the middle of the forest because they mark people's property. You know, farmers made their own cider at home. It was this it was this um, self sufficient kind of product. They might have bought something distilled here or there in the local pub or gone to a pub for a beer, but you know, they made their own cider because why buy something when you can make it? You know, it's that thrifty New England spirit. But they had to mark their property by, you know, planting these apple trees. You couldn't clear forests for land until unless you were legally you had to plant uh, apple trees to mark your property. So this history of what kind of apples make the best kind of cider, what kind of cider is the style of New England, what kind of ciders you drink at certain times of the year, because you can have ciders that are meant to be drunk young and some that are best for aging and all and everything in between. Is this was lost prohibition. We just lost everything during prohibition. We lost a generation of people who knew, had that history and, and knew how to make those products and had done it for generations and whatnot. So it's going to take a long time to come back, but um, I'm excited about all the people who are running headlock into it. Um, yeah. Do you think it could become, I mean, obviously not size and girth of wine, but could become more prevalent in the variety, I guess, as like one, like, I mean, all of the stuff that's here, you know what I mean? Like something. There's so many varieties of apples that most people have no clue about. I mean, there are a few people in New England who still propagate the kinds of trees, the types of varieties of apples that you can make amazing cider with. But, you know, there's also f phenomenal eating apples. I mean, we also forget that this part of the world you grew a variety of apples because you were eating apples up until May or June. <laughs> I mean, blueberries, whatnot, you know, you couldn't find those wild until, I mean, now, you know, wild, not high bush, but, you know, blueberries until a certain time of the year. And so there were apples planted expressly so you, a farm could have fresh fruit to eat to get you through. New England spring in quotation marks, you know, which is not March, it's May. You know? um, so, you know, I mean, we have that lost that history too, or now we go in the grocery store three or four types of apples and we've expected them year round. They come from Washington or 
you know, somewhere in the Pacific Northwest and uh, we've just lost that whole history. But some apples that are, you cannot eat, they're so hard and high in acid when they're picked in September, October are absolutely phenomenal come March or April and they have layered complexity to them. And then to cook with some, you can cook with them early or eat with them late, you know? And so it's just more than just, just ciders, all histories, hundreds of years, thousands of years of like propagating, propagating, uh, apple trees, which I think a lot of stuff has been lost. So I'd be, I'd be, I'd be looking forward to the day when people have some sort of device that someone smarter than me, who someone smarter than me has concocted so that, um, you know, a, a household can, can buy a bushel or two and in the winter and store them in some device that helps ga- keep them gas from, you know, from aging and spoiling so they can have fresh fruit that's locally grown year round and to taste what that fruit is like and how as it softens, it gets sweeter and, you know, have the, have a family understand that relationship and be tied to that relationship because New England can't grow as many apples. We're not going to feed the world. We're not going to feed North America. You can grow way more apples in the Midwest and out wet on the West coast in terms of volume but we can grow a high quality apple and we can grow a range of apples and storage apples to get us through winter. And then when you overlay that with cider, I mean, it's just so many varieties of, of amazing cider varieties that we could, we could bring back into a beverage that was not for, you know, nationwide consumption, but for consumption in New England, you know? So in the same way that people are talking about natural wine, you can make ciders that way too. Unfiltered, you know, cloudy, no sulfites added that can be, you know, beautiful and rich and tannic and high in acid and can have with hard cheeses and have with serious food, you know, pork chops and whatnot and, and did. And I'd love to see that sort of come back, you know, but it's going to take some time. I'm not sure the average consumer knows what those ciders taste like. They can't be flavored. You know, they can't be like additives or flavored or dry hopped or, you know, mix of blueberry, you know, extract or whatever. There's got to be a taste of, 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 of apples. Yeah. Yeah. No one knows what a cider's like that's been in cask and it's aged for five years in the bottle. No one knows what that's like, but once upon a time they did. Spring's coming. Summer's not far behind. Like, what are you excited about to drink well, or to have around the table right now? I would right say now? across the board, um, you know, it's a very, rosé is very fashionable now, but I think that um, we're finally getting to the point where really good white wine can be consumed in the same, where people consider it the same, at the same par with sort of red wine. And I don't, I'm not trying to tell people has to look this way or taste this way, but I mean, making red wine is sort of easy. Once you've done it once or twice, it's pretty straightforward. Making white wine, good quality, world-class white wine that can age is really hard to do. So... I'm actually looking forward to this summer and having some really great white wines that go with a variety of foods that you, you don't serve ice cold, that you can drink, have the bottle open over a couple of days that make you hungry, you have a sip of and they make you hungry, you know, and putting down, I mean, we, New England summer so fleeting, we have winter all, you know, red wine all winter long. It's nice to have a few months where you just can be focused on white wines and have them with, you know, whatever hard cheeses and meats or you know serious stuff so yeah yeah so plug me on some like either a place a variety a thing a producer like what's a thing like that i can go to the store right now and just maybe i wouldn't be able to find something that you have or distribute but like something that i could go be like this is maybe an expression of the thing that so people associate white wine being like floral and fruity and i think that some of the best white wines um coming from either uh loire valley chenin blanc or in certain parts of italy uh I'm, I've been really taken the last couple of years with uh, Verdicchio. Verdicchio is a white variety of grape that's grown on the east coast, central east coast of Italy. And the wine can be, you know, sweet, aromatic, but um, 
I mean, not sweet, fruit, fruity, but not like sugary sweet, but salty and minerally. Um, it can reward patients. It like gets your appetite going. You know, like you can it. have it with fish. You can have the vegetables. You can have it with, you know, white meats. You can have it with terrines. You can have it with cheese. It's like kind of a, you know, it can go with so many different types of things. Like summertime. Exactly. Cookout outside. Exactly. Sitting on the sitting on the patio. Exactly. Yeah. And it can you can have a glass, you can finish a bottle, you can have it over a couple days, you know. Yeah. I always tell people don't don't put it in the fridge. Don't put it ice cold in the fridge, you know. You want it kind of cool but not cool to the touch, but not ice cold. So take like store it out or store no, it in it, the fridge and take it. Keep it in the fridge if you're just if you just bought it and you're going to have it that night, but bring it out ahead of time. Let yeah, it warm up let a it bit. Sit for a few. Pull the cork and, you know, pour yourself a glass. It'll get that temperature going a bit more. And yeah. Like, what are some goals or visions or stuff that you have or like plans down the road or anything um, for me's and wine or? More of the same, continue growth, I would say, throughout Massachusetts. There's this is an amazing state of hills and dales and small nooks and crannies of towns of different sizes. And it's a very old part of the country. So in every of these nooks and crannies, there's people who care about wine and good wine. And there's a huge farming history, um, in this, in this state. Um, so we want to continue to grow and expand to, you know, from the tip of Cape Cod all the way out to the Western edge of the Berkshires and everywhere in between. But we also want to get more of those people who maybe have tried one of our wines, but don't know us as a company to kind of get to be known as that kind of go-to local company and get known for maybe not necessarily what's on the front of the label all the time because that might change over the course of a year but if they see that back label and they like they trust that that me's name that they'll keep going to it no matter what if it's a tetra pack a can a glass bottle whatever the the history of wine in this state in this commonwealth is a rich pageant of amazing companies and importers who are have we you know that we're following the footsteps in I I just want us to be one of the great small little companies that gets known. What's the last memorable food thing that someone else has cooked for you? Could be a restaurant, could be at someone's home, but the last thing that pops in your mind is a memorable um, food experience. We're in this transition time of the year, so uh, sometimes, and I'm a firm believer in, I cook at home all the time, but I don't like to do fancy stuff. So I think ingredients, especially when they're fresh, should kind of speak for themselves. And even though it hasn't happened this year, I'm so excited about asparagus season, which we're just on the verge of hitting here. So I would just encourage people, if you eat asparagus, first of all, don't eat it in the wintertime. But if you eat and you're excited about asparagus season coming up, go to a farm, get it as fresh out of the farm and eat it raw. Like that is for me, like a, just an amazing experience when, if you have a chance to pick it yourself or to see someone, no one's picked that morning and eat it raw. It can be so sweet and it changes so much in 24 hours. It's like a whole different vegetable after 24 hours. So I'm excited to see asparagus and peas in New England um, because they're like that first green things that we're going to see here, um, you know, and other greens as well. Yeah. So last year or in years yeah, past, so where have you Yeah, so my partner Jenny's, Jenny's family has this farm in Cohasset and uh, they have a little bit of asparagus there and, and picking it and eating it right in the field is just such a treat. It's just, it makes getting through winter worth it. You're just like, it's like the beginning of warm weather of growing season again. Uh, what is a memorable food from growing up? My grandmother, my mother's mother is a really good cook. So she used to, used to make amazing food. Um, so when we would get together as a family or Sunday meals, you know, and going over to their house, she would just be cooking so many sort of dishes that were, um, 
I just remember eating for hours, you know, long afternoon meals, eating for hours. And, um, so there's a lot of things wrapped up sort of in there. You know, my mom's side of the family, my, my mom's side of the family was Arabic. So a lot of his dishes had, you know, I grew up with things like hummus and tabbouleh, fresh made, you know, after someone's been sitting over chopping parsley and, and working in a food processor all day and kibbe and, and, uh, things that, you know, meals that take time, a lot of time that someone who works in a restaurant can understand, you know, not running home, putting a few things together. It's a day. And yeah, it's a day. It's and a it's, day. And it's, and it's, and it's, uh, and yeah. so, and then you savor them for hours, you know, because it's just, you know, course after course and so many of them. So just meals that were over, but then somehow I was able to go back and get a thirds or a fourth and right. come back an hour later and keep crazy and eating. Oh man, that's that. great. Yeah. That's super awesome. What is the most or recently memorable last thing that you've cooked either for yourself or for other people? Yeah. Well, I think we might've discussed this as well. Like I've been taking, taken with, uh, home baking for the last few years. So I've been, uh, baking my own sourdough bread at home. So actually just over the weekend had probably a loaf that was very memorable, memorable. It was probably one of my top whole wheat loaves. Yeah. Experimenting of like high percentage of whole wheat flour. So this was like 40% whole wheat flour with like a 36 hour ferment, um, you know, soup to nuts and uh, high hydration level. So um, they're from grains. I, I've been a member for a couple of years of this grain CSA. So there was whole wheat from growing here in central Massachusetts. And uh, the flavor, you know, and I cut after it came, after it cooled and I cut into the loaf was just like, you just felt like it was the kind of bread you could see someone having 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And so you just, it's a cultural reference point. You know, you could have breakfast, you got it for lunch. I just found myself slicing slice after slice after slice. And it was, you know, it's so toothsome. It's so nourishing. Like it's, it's a food unto itself, but whether you have a cheese or butter or olive oil or whatever, you know. It's perfect. Yeah, exactly. Um, David Mitchell, thank you so much. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for showing This has been me. fun. Let's do this again. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, David Mitchell. That was a really fun conversation. Learned a lot about wine and uh, cider and all sorts of stuff like that. Made my first batch of cider this last fall. I'm gearing up for a larger uh, cider adventure this fall. Um, Tons of fun stuff going on for sure. Uh, For the recipe this week, I am sharing malfati with tomatoes and nettles. Went out and got some nettles. They're popping up everywhere. It's springtime. Um, this recipe was inspired by Connie Green and Ignacios Matos. They're super cool. Ignacios in the new Bon Appetit feature uh, going to the Italian countryside. Super next level. Bringing a bunch of friends, cooking all the time, drinking Aperol spritzes. So I tried to tap into a little bit of that. And Connie Green uh, in her book, The Wild Table, she has a recipe for malfati with nettles. So I kind of, you know, just riffed on both of those and came out really good. So, new recipe up on nevintaylorcooks.com. New video recipe up on my YouTube channel. Check it out. And I have been going crazy, getting a ton of more interviews going. I have a bunch lined up, ready to go. Um, A lot more adventures coming up. Got a big trip coming up. Well, got a trip coming up to Israel. 
and hopefully it happens and if it does i'm going to be taking all of this stuff with me trying to find some cool things going on in israel so if you know anybody or if you have any suggestions on places for me to go flying to tel aviv please reach out you can you can find all my information all that stuff on nevintaylorcooks.com uh, and send me an email or, or reach out to me on twitter or instagram or whatever anyway oh and on the video this week we have a update from Matteo Campesino from a couple episodes ago. Uh, he was talking, I asked him about, he's in Peru right now, and I asked him about what his favorite dish was when he gets there. What's the thing that he, he wants to get uh, first thing when he lands? And he said this dish called Pilta Capre. <laughs> Or, or something like that. I probably just butchered it, but um, it's like smashed avocados and yuca. And he sent a video from Peru showing us what it is in the market. So check out the video this week because he's going to be on there too. So you can see Mateo and see the food in Peru that he was talking about. Super cool. Um, thank you, Mateo, in Peru. You know, if you're listening to this, thanks for sending that along. Super cool. Everything's working out very well. I love life. I love cooking. Uh, I love food and meeting all these cool people. So many good interviews to come. Um, so many more recipes to share and adventures to go on. I can't wait to share it all here. Uh, this was the 10th episode. I don't know if that's like a big deal or not, but it's a big deal to me. Uh, so that's really cool. Thank you very much for listening and supporting. And I'll catch you guys next week. Bye.